violence embracing racist fascism did not start with Trump. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What has happened to the Republican Party? How is it that as we head into 2022, as our guest says, the Republican Party, from national leadership to voters, has come to embrace violent authoritarianism, end of quote. Clearly, this is not our father's Republican Party. How did we get here? Now, I served many years in the New Hampshire State Senate, and of course, many of my colleagues were Republicans. They were genuine conservatives. That party is gone. There's nothing at all conservative about a party that marches in lockstep with an authoritarian intent on taking down our Republican form of government and replacing it with the religious nationalism. That is not conservatism. As one of our guests advised, to navigate today's stormy waters, we should think with history. Our guest today, Joseph Lowndes, professor of political science at the University of Oregon, provides a much-needed perspective on how we got here. He wrote in the Washington Post and later on the History News Network, quote, far-right extremism dominates the GOP. It didn't start and won't end with Trump. How a decades-long movement helped the far-right fringe gain control of the GOP. Well, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor Lowndes. Uh, so much. This is just so incredible to see what's going on with uh, one of the two major parties. Far from being the small government, pro-business, previous identity of the grand old party, a name I never really liked, you say the radical change surely didn't start with Trump, an authoritarian nationalist vision that could bridge party identity presidential leadership, and militant extremism, that that was already long in the making. Today we're going to try to figure out, as you write, one of the two great political parties in the U.S. has been transformed top to bottom into a vehicle for far-right extremism. And I will say it seems to uh, celebrate real violence, racist-led violence. I remember when the John Birch Society and George Corley Wallace were considered way out there on the far-right fringe of American politics. Then, in 1964, when Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater, in answer to his slogan, In your heart, you know he's right, some clever activist added, Yes, far-right. But by today's standards, how far-right was the Arizona senator? Your thoughts, Professor Lowndes? Yeah, that's really a great question. I, I, I'll add that um, in around the Johnson administration, they, they used to say uh, about that Goldwater slogan, in your guts, you know, he's nuts. That's and, right. <laughs> gives you another sense of how, you know, how far on the fringes he was considered. And in some ways, you know, this, the story does kind of begin with Goldwater. This was the uh, beginnings of a, you know, kind of a, a right wing insurgency inside what had been you know, relatively uh, a moderate party uh, in the Eisenhower years. Uh, Goldwater was the uh, the most right-wing member of the Senate and the most uh, prominent right-wing figure of the party. Uh, although his 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 right-wing politics kind of leaned towards a kind of a more of a kind of a libertarian mm-hmm. bent in a way, a pro-market bent. 
but you know, partly what what happened in 1964 was uh, the only possibility of of winning any states outside his home state of Arizona would be to make common cause with um, the, you know with former Dixiecrats, with people who were um, who were who would want him to stand against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so you know, this kind of begins a a, a fusing of um, you know racial politics and conservatism. Uh, in a distinct way. And so in some ways, you know, Goldwater seems tame by comparison yes. to uh, contemporary conservatives. Absolutely. So, it's a, so we have to think of them in two ways. One, kind of developmentally, Goldwater years gets the ball rolling. And there are a number of people from the Goldwater campaign uh, who end up being these kind of populist right wing figures in the 70s and afterwards. But on the other hand, you know, he uh was indeed moderate by by contemporary standards. Certainly was. I mean, he didn't embrace violence. I, it's just it's it's unimaginable. And then, as you point out, that was 1964. In 1968, uh, we got a president who embraced what he called the Southern strategy, which uh, it's I clearly attempted to connect with a lot of that uh, you know kind of racist uh, white supremacist stuff, and. Mm-hmm. The, the, the white sheets of the Klan and the swastika of the neo-Nazis in the late 60s had public relations problems, understandably. But perhaps brilliantly, the Republican Party found new, more subtle ways to tap into that racist energy. Nixon won. And when Ronald Reagan talked about welfare queens, mm-hmm, that was like a dog whistle the old school racists could hear. How is it that in the late 20th century, they figured out it would be to their electoral benefit to provoke racial resentments as they avoided openly embracing white supremacy. How did they figure that out? Yeah, well, you know, there's two things going on at once there. One, in the kind of post-civil rights era, it it became... you know, unpopular to speak in you know openly racial or racist language at all for anybody of either party, and so in a way there was uh, Republicans begin to finally turn to the language of colorblindness as a way kind of around um, directly uh, you know addressing or making racial appeals. On the other hand, uh, the possibility of playing on racial resentments or racial backlash. Uh, in the 1980s, or, or in Reagan's, you know, 1980 campaign, um, you know, was was very possible both in the North and the South, so and the West. So, you know, when Reagan, when he it, it begins his 1980 campaign, uh, kicks it off in uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was, uh, you know, uh, in Shelba County, the, a place that was only known prior to that for the. Um, uh, being the location of the murder of uh, of three civil rights oh, workers, right. sixty four Cheney, uh, Schwerner, and Goodman, yeah. and so he says, you know, he he says on the trail there, and you know, it was it was um, it was Trent Lott, the uh, mm. uh, Democrat turned Republican, hard right senator from Mississippi, who actually invited him down there and told him that was the place to speak. Where Reagan says, "Like you, I believe in states' rights," and of course that then signals, yeah. you know, that he is going to have. Um, uh, uh, you know, a strong racial agenda. And so, you know, he, Reagan is able to nurture a whole um, generation of of people who can kind of racially conservative Republicans, you know, uh, uh, John Roberts gets a start in, in Reagan's office of uh, civil rights. Yeah. And, you know, his, the, the, um, 
and that you know what the what the Reagan administration hoped to do uh, through his you know um, through the Civil Rights Commission through the Office of Legal Counsel was to find ways to uh, use affirmative action or anti-discrimination law uh, in a way that would be would benefit whites to say that whites are being discriminated against and so that you know mm. it begins that that process of racial resentment there. Um, but you know, even there, Reagan, by uh, contemporary standards, also looks pretty moderate around these things. Yeah, for sure. And and it's funny. I grew up in the fifties, and I remember, you know, watching the uh, the racist police and the attack dogs back then. And I thought, I, I assumed, I really believed that racism was just something that happened to a few people in the South. I mm-hmm. I had no idea, and I, and I think most of us preferred to believe that it was an aberration. But the fact that Nixon and Reagan and those guys understood and and used it. And, you know, I'm reminded of the old bumper sticker, the South shall rise again. And uh, actually, there's an abolitionist that I that I often quote, Wendell Phillips, who said, uh, maybe this is just after the Civil War. He said, maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. And it does seem like he was prescient, and those values have taken over the Republican Party. What happened to the, to the old moderates, the genuine conservatives, the pro-business, you know, small government types? How, how did that happen <laughs> that they got steamrollered? Yeah. Well, first I have to say, I love that you uh, quoted Wendell Phillips. He's, he's my favorite abolitionist. Ah. Uh, uh, the lesson of the hour is a, is a, is a great essay. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, there, he's right that there is, you know, certainly, you know, white supremacy uh, has been at the heart. You know, I mean, this is the, the debate currently around the 1619 project. Mm. Uh, you know, that white supremacy was was foundational to the whole U.S. economy, not just that of the South. And it was, you know, built into the Constitution in a number of ways. And so there's not, it's, there's not, there's no way of getting around the fact that this is, you know, a, a country founded on black slavery and native genocide is going to be able to easily, um, you know, uh, emerge from that uh, without any, any marks on its history or its present uh, would, would be mm. um, pretty unthinkable. So we, we are kind of stuck with something, with the ways in which, um, Racial politics, in terms of its political articulation in the South, in prior to the Civil War, in the Civil War, and after Reconstruction, uh, the Redemption, then through Jim yes. Crow, and then finally, as a national project, I think in the post-war era, the Dixification of U.S. politics, which happens, um, you know, both from Southern evangelicals and from Southern racists, that happens uh, in the nineteen, really, you know, Strom Thurmond is the first kind uh-huh. of major. Southern figure to kind of come over from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And then he brings a lot of people, obviously, with him, finally, white conservatives, you know, overall. But, you know, what also happened is that Northern conservatives who had not, did not have a distinct interest in race, just, you know, really realized that they um, they needed to have an investment there in racial politics if they were going to uh-huh. um, And so you see that these kind of tortured debates that happened on the pages of the National Review uh, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and and then the development of the party, as you said afterwards, the Southern strategy with Reagan, and then um, you know Reagan Democrats with with uh, oh, yeah. uh, who who come over, you know, who are um, found in you know Macomb County, Michigan, uh, 
uh, by Stanley Greenberg, the pollster. Uh, but then that's, that's it's a phenomenon that takes place all over the place. And then by the time you get to George H.W. Bush, there's um, yeah. you know the Willie Horton ads, which which help get him into office. But partly, though, there is also there's another question about really direct far right influence on the party, which is a which is a a story that's connected to this, but it's slightly um, has slightly different roots. Do share that with us, please. <laughs> okay. Well, I think you know you mentioned George Wallace, who's kind of a key figure in all of this. Uh, Wallace, you know, first he's the he's the you know governor of Alabama. Um, uh, it becomes famous for the stand on the schoolhouse door of the University of Alabama, where um, he uh, kind of does a public show of of not allowing it to be integrated, right. and then decides he's going to run for president. Right after that, he gets the floods of letters from all over the country. You know, people who who see him as a hero, and then he runs in. Democratic primaries in '64 and does well not just in the South but in places like Milwaukee and and Detroit and in uh, Baltimore, you know, places outside the South. Baltimore is kind of on the border there, but yeah. uh, you know, he's able to kind of like tap into a certain kind of like angry white working class resentment. That then becomes kind of key to his when he runs in '68, the American Independent Party. Uh, he's taking votes from both Republicans and Democrats, uh, forging kind of a white racial you know, kind of resentment, uh, kind of populism that, you know, was he, of course he was never going to win, but the political formation there, you know, he got, you know, 12% of the vote that year, I think in 68. And, but partly what happens is then you've got, and that, that Wallace campaign was made up of all kinds of, there's Minutemen, there were Klansmen, there were, you know, all kinds of like right-wing far-right vigilantes involved with that campaign. And, and they were needed in order to get him on the ballot in 50 states, the most extreme radical right-wing elements, uh, not just Birchers, but really, you know, all these armed figures. And so then, you know, in the 70s, there are people who are kind of like, populists in mm -hmm. kind of right-wing populists in the Republican Party who are who, who felt like Nixon was a sellout uh, and they felt like Watergate was a disaster. They were worried about, uh, you know, a liberal trend in the Republican Party. And so mm -hmm. they began to search for, you know, outside forces, other people on the right to, to work with. And uh, some of these... Um, you know, people like uh, William Rusher, who was the publisher of the National Review, uh, begins to cast around for uh, third-party options based on uh, what he calls middle America, uh, you know, or the silent majority. Right. These are terms that, that that had been used in the Nixon administration. But really, the hope here was that you could get like a, you know, you could pull together resentful middle-class and working-class whites into a distinct political party. This was. Um, uh, Kevin Phillips, who was a right. Nixon, um, uh, you know, uh, aide, an elections analyst, uh, kind of helps get this effort going early on. But partly what you had is these, you know, these these figures who are coming in from the far right, um, who had been part of uh, either they were Southern segregationists, members of the Citizens Council, some of them were Klansmen, who had been part of the American Independent Party, Wallace's party, who then are helping to try to fashion some new political formation in the 70s there had been some talk with pat buchanan around some mm -hmm. of these things and so this was you know this was the this became the draft reagan movement in in 76 these these folks wanted to, they would hope to either draft reagan or wallace into a third party candidacy in 68 uh 
Reagan decided to run as a as a Republican, and Wallace decided to give his delegates over to the Democratic Party finally for for uh, Jimmy Carter. But partly, you get these new right activists who were who came out of that movement in the seventies, who helped this who helped forge what we call the new right and helped uh, propel Reagan, who at that point was really on the far right of the party into the center of the party by 1980 and gave him a, a political campaign where he could pull together uh, kind of resentful whites, evangelicals, hardcore old line conservatives into a, into a new political formation. So th- that gives us Reagan, but uh, there's still kind of populist outsiders who are continually chafing at the bit and organizing at the edges of the Republican Party and wanting to push it rightward and wanting to push racial issues to the top of the agenda and wanting to push other kind of, you know, old either anti-communism or isolationism or, you know, other kind of like really hard right, old right ideas. Pat Buchanan thinks about running against Reagan and uh, against George H.W. Bush in 88 uh, partly because he sees he had been Reagan's um, communications director for a while, but he saw the the neocons in the party as essentially kind of sellouts to, um, you know, to the, the to free traders and to the banks sure. and to kind of a liberal internationalism. But one thing, so so Buchanan considers running in, in '88, but he decides not to. And then he runs in '92 at a, at a moment when the uh, economy is really sluggish, and 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 uh, particularly in the manufacturing sector, you've got high unemployment, and uh, a lot of you know a lot of deindustrialization, and a lot of people yes. who are dislocated and angry. And one thing that that Buchanan, who I think is, you know, one of the most brilliant analysts in American politics, is one of the mo- as well as one of the most terrifying in certain ways. He knows that like with the end of the Cold War that new possibilities have opened up on the right. He sees that there's no longer this kind of um, the threat of Soviet totalitarianism that holds both parties together in kind of an ideological consensus that has been kind of like the the post-war consensus, uh, uh, which had reigned up until that time. He saw that suddenly you've got no longer the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, but the U.S. having to define a new role for itself. And... um, Therefore, the possibility that you the new kinds of political visions, in his case, an, isol- an isolationism, which was deeply uh, opposed to free trade, opposed to Wall Street, opposed to uh, open immigration, uh, and um, one that was anchored in kind of a religious nationalism. So that kind of begins the, the process of like a, of, um, a hard right politics. And the person who he really... The, re- the person who made uh, Buchanan jump into the race really was uh, David Duke, the uh-huh. uh, grand former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, who had run in 1988 for the state legislature in Louisiana as a Republican, uh, winning that seat. He then ran for governor of uh, of Louisiana as a Republican in uh, 1991, and this this sent all the Republicans into a panic. I mean, Reagan, uh, George H. W. Bush, other people are. You know, they had kind of campaigned for his, um, you know, against him in in uh, in '88 uh, in the state of Louisiana because they did not want to see the party openly connected with the Ku Klux Klan. They thought it was a crisis. Buchanan saw it differently. What Buchanan said was, "Let's deal with Duke the way we dealt with George Wallace. Let's uh, uh, find the issues that uh, we that that are in line with the GOP." And and absorb those into our own coalition and leave the rest behind. So he saw, you know, use Duke as an opportunity. That is amazing, really. And uh, 
I'm embarrassed to admit, but uh, in 1996, in the Republican primary in my state here in New Hampshire, Pat Buchanan won. Maybe we were ahead of the curve. Yes, he did. He was, you know, that was a, you know, he it was a black eye to to Bob Dole early That's on. That's for sure. You know? And it got a lot of people's attention because, of course, as you know, in 92, he, he did his famous culture war yes. speech. He was able to get on, you know, uh, uh, to the primetime speaking slot of the Republican convention. Sure but, you know, partly what he had done in those years was, you know, he brought in a lot of, you know, he, he had he really he pulled on a lot of things from David Duke's campaigns and other strategies the Klan had been using. Like, you know, uh, Duke had, was one of the first people to really fan the flames of the idea of Latin American immigration and immigrants mm. and undocumented people coming over the border and, and, uh, and immigrants from, uh, Vietnam and other places in Asia, immigrants from Africa. There was a, there's the beginnings of, um, a movement, a nativist movement, yes. which had not really existed in the United States since the, since the 1920s. Yeah. Uh, Partly because the uh, the Hart Seller Act in the you know in the 1960s opened up immigration, finally took the racial quota, quit racial barriers off immigration, and uh, allowed the possibility that you could have new kinds of nativist racism that might have uh, appeal in the American electorate. So Buchanan hits that hard in a way that uh, is you know he hits kind of like in the South he plays to a, a neo Confederate anti black you know uh, sure. uh, kind of yeah openly and then in the west in california he's really he's you know he's all about immigrants there right. and so that really does you know that that allows him as well as treating the republican party as a set of out of touch ivy league elites which is always the, how populism works right right wing populism is always uh uh forged against those right uh, you know you see as below you and those you see as above you yeah and um and so that's uh, that's part of what happens there. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we are trying to keep democracy alive. It's under serious threat now, and, and the title of this show was picked way before Trump even got elected. Yikes, I wish I weren't so right. Our guest today is Professor Joseph Lowndes, who's written a piece on in the Washington Post. Far-right extremism dominates the GOP. It didn't start, and it won't end with Trump. And populism... You know, it's been around a long time. You know, there was the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions, which was, I think, a kind of populism. They wanted the government to work for the working people, for the farmers and yeomen. Uh, it was mainly rural people who lived in less domply, densely populated areas, and they felt ignored. Sounds mm -hmm. like today, the flyover states. In this perspective, uh, it seems like the election of 2016 was a perfect storm openly elitist Hillary Clinton versus a commoner, a man of the people. The traditional Republican Party uh, only connected with them in cultural issues. But what, you know, there have been Democrats who were populist too, the old uh, prairie populists in the late 19th century, connected with people in the flyover states. How, wh what, what did the Democrats get wrong? I suspect a lot of it was uh, looking elitist, the, the Clinton Democrats, uh, as opposed to the Bernie Sanders Democrats, who I think are more traditionally populist. So how was the Republican Party, the right-wingers, the populists, so able to successfully portray the Democrats as an attack on middle America? 
Yeah, I mean, partly, you know, the, the, the legacies of populism, as you suggested, go in a number of directions in the United States. And, of course, the, the you know, the Populist Party in 1892 or the various right. populist movements, you know, they were, you know, biracial formations in the Deep South and they were, you know, cooperatives in the West. And, you know, this was a, this was a, a, a mass movement which uh, empowered uh, mostly farmers, but farmers and some workers against the big interests, against, uh, you know, the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's, uh, you know, the oil interests, the railroad interests, the steel interests, uh, as, as a way of democratizing American society. And so there was, you know, populism has a certain kind of left-wing legacy, which then helps inform ultimately uh, many of the programs of the New Deal after 1932. But the populists were unable to kind of bridge the gap to urban workers in the 1890s. They, that's, that's what made 1896 a, ultimately a failure for William Jennings Bryan, mm. is that this was a, it was a rural phenomenon really right at the moment when more people suddenly were living in cities than were living on farms. And so populism you know, is forward-looking in terms of wanting to go national to save the local, that you need a strong federal government that would work as a regulatory force over capital. On the other hand, it was a little bit backward-looking and imagining that you could uh-huh. reestablish the old Commonwealth, you know, in, in, in terms of, a, you know, Jeffersonian democracy. So that's, you know, so what you get today, I think, in a, in a way, is a kind of a rural populism that, that, um, that's more symbolic than anything else. It draws on cultural issues. It draws on, you know, here in Oregon, for instance, there's this greater Oregon movement or greater Idaho movement. There's a number of activists uh-huh. in a number of counties in rural Oregon who want to join the state of Idaho. And they say it's because they, they, they're not represented by the urban interests of Portland, Oregon. Right. And that you've got like a, 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 a blue legislature and a democratic governor here, and they feel really left out and they feel really not included. And those are real issues because capital is, you know, is centered in in, in the urban areas, sure. in the metropolis, not in the rural areas. But if you ask people why they want to join the state of Idaho, they say it's about about the rural values. But then you ask what those rural values are, and it's it's uh, you know questions of abortion, questions of immigration, questions of things that are not necessarily about rural life at all. They mm. just have their they're politically conservative issues. Had you asked somebody in the 1890s what a rural issue was there, you would actually have gotten a much more uh, progressive uh, mm. uh, kind of political answer. So that those things are different. But I think you're right about 2016. And one of one of the things about 2016 was that the Republican candidates who Trump beat in the primaries there were all kind of representatives of neoliberal capital. You know, they were they were kind of all um, stamped with you know, pro, uh, pro free trade, pro NAFTA, pro Wall Street, you know, you know, Jeb Bush, uh, uh, Marco Rubio, all of them, all the major um, uh, candidates who would have seemed like shoe-ins were disrupted by uh, kind of like an idea by people who in the primaries really saw themselves uh, as being on the, on the, you know, excluded from American politics. So that that much is true, and you know, uh, one of the things about that as well is that these are these are people who are thinking of their own economic interests or their own economic circumstances as tied to their racial circumstances, mm-hmm. right? That that they're 
that 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 there's immigrants were getting in line in front of us, that there are black folks were getting in line in front of us, right. that there are, you know, and so class and race got kind of the Trump campaign was able to very easily merge issues of class and race, class resentment and racial resentment together. Wow. That it's interesting how, how well it's it's worked and it's worked in other countries as well. One thinks of the uh, the center of Europe in the 1920s and 30s, where people, you know, had this imaginary uh, great uh, culture that had, uh, well, gotten beaten, uh, and they uh, and they wanted a comeback. And people get resentful. The politics of resentment are really, really powerful. There's no question about that. Now, in reading your article, I had heard of some, you know, most of it. And uh, Pat Buchanan, for example, I learned a lot about Pat Buchanan just now from you, but I'd never heard of Samuel Francis. His work was and remains quite influential to this day. Who was who Samuel Francis? And you talked about uh, class and racial resentments uh, and what he called new social forces that hadn't really, they hadn't been part of the Republican Party. They've been out there on the fringe, but not part of the Republican Party. Tell us about Samuel Francis and what he meant by new social forces and how powerful those things have become. Yeah, Sam Francis is a fascinating figure. So he, um, he was a guy who, was, who had gotten, a, I think, a PhD in history from the University of North Carolina. He was a, he was a Tennessean. Uh, who begins his political career working for uh, North Carolina Senator uh, John Eastman, uh, and particularly as a staff member on his on the Foreign Relations Committee. And Eastman Eastman died uh, at some point, and then um, uh, Francis went on to work for the Heritage Foundation, and then from there became a uh, a columnist for the Washington Times and a really a, 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 an award-winning columnist for the Washington Times. Uh, he was a very gifted writer, a very gifted analyst, very gifted thinker, and he was somebody who has was really at the heart of the American conservative movement. If you think about his time on, on in the Senate on Capitol Hill, and then the Heritage Foundation, and then the Washington Times, he is kind of like you know right right in the middle of it there. But Francis was. Um, uh, kind of a had a kind of a radical streak in him, and that went kind of in two directions. One was uh, an analysis of what he called. Uh, he, he was very influenced by um, a book by by a sociologist named Donald Warren on uh, Middle American radicals, and this were these were people who Warren uh, argued were uh, people we've been kind of talking about, white populists essentially, people who were uh, lower middle class, working class, maybe middle class. Who were white, who uh, felt like the their kind of traditional values and had been disrupted in the 1960s by the anti-war movement, by feminism, by uh, civil rights, and they felt betrayed by the system and were open to new identifications. He saw them as people who were also angry at their own bosses, angry at this kind of emerging managerial class in the 1970s. The way that that left-wing sociologists called it called these folks new class, these professional this professional managerial class. Mm. So Sam Francis is picking up on this idea of this kind of like this, this, um, 
this demographic in society that's open to radicalization because they feel both aggrieved from the uh, the uh, insults they've taken from the 1960s, but also from a new class of managers who uh, are you know are are bureaucrats and are um, you know forcing them into new modes of 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 you know, of, of work that are um, leaving them increasingly alienated from the system. So that, so he picks that up oddly from James Burnham, who had been a, a writer at the, uh, an editor at the National Review, who prior to that, Burnham had been a Trotskyist in the 1940s. He'd yeah. written a book called The Managerial Revolution, which, so there's these kind of like weird left-wing echoes in what end up in Francis's writings. He also, Francis also was a, a close reader of Antonio Gramsci, the, the Italian communist. Um, and so learn from Gramsci, this, uh, the, Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, the idea of mm. certain ideas becoming the common sense of society, and that's how you win political battles, is changing the common sense of society, how people th- view things. So that's, that's part of what Francis has uh, going on. And the other one is a deep commitment and a, and a growing commitment to white supremacy, Francis is convinced that there are there are fundamental genetic differences between uh, whites and blacks in the United States, um, and he is ever more committed to this to this biological reading of racial politics. And this comes out more in his writing in the Washington Times, as and he puts these two things together. He sees middle American radicals as kind of a, a force of white resentment, that a political force of white resentment. So he's kind of a, he's quite a generative thinker and writer. Uh, but he also, he sabotages his own career. He's fired from the Washington times for having said at a eugenicist meeting that, um, the, the Europeans were the creating people, uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, American society. So he, so Francis is fired. And then he goes on to write for increasingly, um, uh, narrow and obscure, uh, racist, uh, publications, um, uh, here and there. But, but in the, during that time period in the 1990s, he also was a close friend of Pat Buchanan's uh-huh. and it was, uh, it was an advisor to Buchanan. And what he kept, it was his real advice to the, the, the core of his advice to Buchanan was to continue to agitate on behalf of middle America, on behalf of these forces and do it in the most radical voice, S- speak for them. And mm. as a, you know, in, in a, not in a language of democracy, but a language of preserving a white republic, preserving a republic that was that was based on European conquest of the continent. Keep raising issues of race, uh, embrace the Confederate flag, em- embrace the radical uh, nativist uh, anti-immigrant movements, and this will begin to give you a place from which to to uh, attack the Republican Party and its kind of elite managerial forces, neoconservatives. Uh, and so this was kind of, you know, his continual, um, I could go into much greater detail about, you know, his influences on, on Francis. You can actually read um, Pat Buchanan's own words about Francis, who he uh, adored and saw him as the, you know, kind of the, the greatest thinker of the 20th century. Mm. But so, but Francis then kind of, you know, he finally died sometime in the early 2000s, like 2003, 2004, but he became a major influence on an emergent alt-right. So people that become the kind of like notorious neo-Nazis after Trump is elected, like Richard Spencer, sure. uh, uh, these folks, they all had been, they all were avid readers of, of Sam Francis and saw that Francis's political um, 
a formula is as something that really, you know, is some is a way of radicalizing the Republican Party from the outside and radical and and really pulling together disparate forces on the right into, um, a, you know, into a, a hegemonic movement. Absolutely amazing. We never heard of him. Most people haven't. And uh, the power there uh, is just uh, it's quite remarkable. And, you know, in other times he might have been thought as a uh, frankly, as a kook. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Joseph Lowndes, a political science professor at University of Oregon, an interesting state, and he's written an article in the Washington Post and History News Network called Far-Right Extremism Dominates the GOP. It didn't start and it won't end with Trump, and it's important that we think with history and understand it. And you talk about, uh, uh, you know, blending class and racial resentments. I see these days masculinity. It seems under threat. Uh, uh, Senator Josh, uh, uh, Josh Hawley said this like a, a crisis of masculinity. There are these people out there who call themselves incel, uh, involuntary celibacy, who are big, big into the Trump far right uh, scene. And I, I just, you know, I can understand I suppose that they're scared of of change and that fear of change and not being able to culturally dominate the rest of the country. I just I I never would have expected the Republican Party to have uh, embraced that so much. And while we're on the subject, we have to bring up Kyle Rittenhouse. The legitimization and embrace of violence, embrace of violence couldn't have a more shocking and expository example than the Republican Party embrace of Kyle Rittenhouse. And I, I read in today's paper, despite killing two people, Kyle Rittenhouse stands to become a celebrity. He is being celebrated by many Republicans. I don't hear any criticism of him, too. Tell us your thoughts on that, please, and, and, and the power of a Kyle Rittenhouse as we move forward. Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, also, I just want to know what you said about masculinity is absolutely on target, that there's no way to think about the, the violence in the Republican Party or the violence on the right without seeing the ways in which there's a glorification of masculinity uh, and, and new kind of expressions of masculinity, which are really at work here, whether you're talking about the Proud Boys or the militias. Uh, or, you know, obviously Trump himself had a, a particularly um, uh, potent uh, and brutal form of masculinity that, you know, and if you look at uh, a lot of the mass killings on the right that have happened in the last decade or so, you know, over half of those have been incel killings. Half of those have been, you know, this kind of like rageful anti-woman um, violence. So that's, I just wanted to say, I think you're absolutely right uh, there. That You know, the Kyle Rittenhouse thing is also... Um, you know, it's a return in some ways to earlier forms of masculinity, right? Mm. Uh, masculine violence. He see, you know, he depicts himself as as kind of a helper, as kind of a, a community protector, as someone who, um, you know, is, is there not just to harm people but to protect the community, right? And so he has almost a, he's almost like a you know almost a Norman Rockwell figure of hey. of, kind of, of <laughs> civic nationalism. You know, there's pictures of him you know, scrubbing graffiti off the off walls and. And that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the, what was particularly dangerous about Kyle Rittenhouse is that he can essentially uh, enact uh, far right political violence and have it not seen as anything particularly nefarious because um, he's not identified with a 
you know, with a white supremacist organization. So if you go back just a couple of years earlier, James Fields, the the uh, white neo-Nazi who killed Heather Heyer uh, at, at, you know, at the Unite the Right rally in, uh, in Charlottesville, that, you know, the, the the neo-Nazis that Unite the Right were roundly condemned by everyone. You know, this was, uh, e- except for Trump himself, but even Steve Bannon, every every Republican wanted to keep their distance from Unite the Right and say these were not our people, the, we have nothing to do with them. And James Field is tried and, you know, given uh, life imprisonment. Fast forward a couple of years, you have Kyle Rittenhouse, who takes an AR-15 and and shoots to death two people and wounds a third. Uh, and he can be treated in a very different way, partly because uh, I think two reasons. One, now political violence on the right has become so commonplace that we are um, that there is just there's more room for it. There's more room for Republicans to embrace this kind of thing. But the other part of it is that the far right has begun not using the language of white supremacy, but of American nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, of law and order, of protecting people and property, and uh, in in doing so, they're able to reframe far right violence and reframe far right politics, and to say that it's and even to go further, just to, to actually to package it as anti racist. My my colleague Dan Hosang and I wrote a book, uh, came out two years ago called Producers, Parasites, Patriots, and partly it's about the. Um, the strange racial politics on the far right that even though it's white supremacist, it's it, white supremacist, it incorporates themes of anti-racism. The proud boys are, um, you know, uh, they always trumpet their, their multicultural, um, uh, membership, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's really, and it's true. They're not wrong about that. And there are other, you know, elements of the militia movements now, which had not, were not tied openly to white supremacy, but to an idea of American nationalism. So if you were to go before January 6th to the uh, websites of, say, the 3% Militia, which is one of the most prominent paramilitary organizations uh, involved in many of the attacks in the summer of 2020 on Black Lives Matter activists, but also during the January 6th riots, if you went to their website, if you went to their about page, the first thing you'd see is in all caps, we are not white nationalists, we are not white supremacists. They want to make it clear that race was not there their agenda. If you went to the Oath Keepers website, the other major paramilitary organization involved in January 6th, on the front page is a YouTube video of a black member of the Oath Keepers, uh, under the, and the caption under, the, under it is, uh, Oath Keepers come in all colors. So there's a way in which the far right has come to understand that if you want to advance right-wing politics in this country, you can't do it under the banner of white supremacy. You have to do it under the banner of American nationalism and ideas of law and order. There's other things you can draw, throw in there: evangelical politics, anti-communism, mm. uh, uh, you know, among a number of other things. But open racism uh, is kind of a non-starter, I think. And so, uh, th- so you have Kyle Rittenhouse comes out on t- his interview with Tucker Carlson, and he says. Uh, I support the Black Lives Matter movement, right. and I believe there's institutional racism. And there's really nothing surprising about that. There's nothing surprising because Kyle Rittenhouse never framed himself as a racist to begin with. He was said he was just protecting against you know disruptive forces, and that's what makes the current movement of the far right that much more dangerous. Is that it is now can enter the mainstream. Uh, because it doesn't have any kind of like open identification with neo-Nazi organizations. And so we're in kind of a very dangerous place now where someone like Rittenhouse can be seen as a, 
you know, a heroic lionized figure of of kind of American civic nationalism, of somebody who's just a caretaker, a protector, uh, uh, you know, and his whiteness is clearly the, the heart of this. And so is his uh, his masculinity. But it's not done. It's it's not it's not expressed in a way that um, uh, can be easily attacked as as uh, white right. supremacy. Interesting. And uh, I'm reminded, I, I read a book a while ago called 1848 about the revolutions in Central Europe, largely, uh, which were you know, kind of pre-Marxist. But I found it fascinating that some of the aristocracy's most ardent defenders were the peasants. And now I've, I do find it interesting that, you know, masculinity, a lot of women support Trumpism and and the far right. I guess it's comfortable and familiar to have you know this protective masculinity myth out there. And who would have thunk it? I you know rather than uh, risking, I suppose, uh, feminism and homosexuality and and you know that kind of social and cultural freedom, uh, it's it's there and it's often mystified me why some of the poorest uh, people support. Uh, you know, the, the really, really wealthy people. Uh, but that's what happens. And clearly America's founders set us up in direct opposition to an all-powerful monarchy. Trumpists put this aside as they enthusiastically and openly embrace executive authoritarianism, the very thing we rebelled against. And they claim to hold the true patriotic banner, which they showed on January 6th. And they, they still call themselves conservative, which kind of baffles me. This is the antithesis of conservatism. And the Republican Party seems to have gone from genuine conservatism to radical anti-traditional Americanism. I mean, we fought fascists in World War II. And... I also, in part of that question, I wonder about the the effects of social media on the super short attention spans people have. Uh, talk to those things, if you would, please. Yeah, well, I think you know you have it exactly right. And one you know, one kind of expression of populism can be this, you know, this idea of Caesarism that you might have uh -huh. one demographic figure. And again, actually, that's another issue that Sam Francis went on about at great length is the need for kind of a Caesarist politics and that would be the way in for, for Americans because you need someone to act as a juggernaut and you know I think uh, and Trump played that role but um, but you know there are some institutional roots of this which are which are in other elements of the Republican Party and most specifically you know the, the George W. Bush during his presidency he tends to be kind of people let him off the hook now because he seems tame comparison to, in comparison to Trump Right. But you remember when he was president, the idea of, uh, you know, he, he he held on to and his major John Yu, his major legal um, counsel, as well as Rumsfeld and Cheney believed in this idea of the unitary executive. Right. This, this was a radical theory that, um, that presidents uh, have the um, the kind of the right and the obligation to interpret the Constitution along with the Supreme Court. And so. Uh, Bush uses executive power really in extraordinary ways. He expands it. He, uh, he, you know, bends other institutions to his will, and often also treats the, you know, the the press with real disregard. The idea of like, who are you to question us? They would people would be punished, kicked out of the White House press corps for uh, for challenging the Bush administration at all, you know. And they, and part of this goes back to 
for Ch- for Cheney and Rumsfeld still wounded feelings about what had happened to Nixon. They felt that Nixon huh. was improperly brought down with Watergate, and this was part of their issue of why they supported the idea of the unitary executive. That this was, uh. they had they thought that the presidency had become too weak with uh, Nixon's downfall. So there's kind of a there's another kind of legacy there as well. So I think part of that is what you get with the Republican Party now is is already people primed to the idea of um, a certain kind of uh, executive power and authoritarian leadership that is appealing is appealing to them, but who or who they see as the the, the figure and the savior uh, of of the rest of the republic. That they they need the concentrated force of this. Um, figure so, I, and I think you're right. It kind of goes against the idea of like, you know, the the attack on the monarchy or the or rebellion against the monarchy. But oddly, you have uh, you know the Jan- January six uh, rioters see themselves as in in you know as if they are in 1776 or 1773 or you know in the late 1760s as figures you know the tea party movement obviously right they see themselves they saw themselves as the you know reenacting the boston tea party they see them they see themselves as combatants against um the idea of a certain kind of uh deep-seated political power that they need to rebel against so they that and so they are they see themselves as exuberant radical Democrats against the deep state, against the administrative state, against conspiratorial forces that are, you know, that uh, the more anti-Semitic versions point to George Soros. But, you know, they, they see themselves as defenders of the republic and, you know, in ways that to them seem not at all contradictory. Absolutely amazing. I continuously am amazed on this, I, I, I must say. And the idea of the deep state, that was so convenient. And, you know, it's just a bunch, I think, a bunch of garbage. There is no, it's a myth. Uh, Tell us about the role of the myth of the deep state and how it fits in. Well, you know, I I have to say that there's part of the the roots of the idea of the deep state. The people who, the the phrase really comes more from the left than the right. And partly it's because... Well, the, actually, the phrase actually goes is, begins with Egypt. I mean, it comes outside the United States, but Whoa. there is, you know, you have to remember since since the COINTELPRO papers in the early 1970s, there has been, a, you know, a deep distrust on the left for um, uh, the FBI in particular, sure. the national security state in general, yes. because these are truly undemocratic and unaccountable um, uh, executive agencies that um, are seem impenetrable by the public. So there's a way in which the, you know, the kinds of, you know, uh, counterintelligence and counter-subversion and, that these agencies, um, you know, engaged in were, became kind of the language that an alienated kind of um, left democratic, from a left democratic viewpoint, that uh, this, was, this was something that really was, um, seem dangerous and seems something that and even if you think about it as, as more recently you know as recently as the george w bush administrations there's you know the cia with these rendition sites and there's there's a lot of things going on that seem to be happening behind the scenes and you know ideas kind of circulate around american politics in ways that don't they're quite promiscuous promiscuous and don't really yeah. uh, settle down they're left or right so this language of the administrative state there's a lot here in terms of uses of kind of leftist language to bolster the far right. I don't believe in a 
this kind of like, you know, idea that you go around far enough on the left, you end up on the right. But I do think there's ways in which certain concepts and ideas can be borrowed and repurposed for other other things. And so uh, what you get with Trump is, you know, a belief that, well, the election didn't go his way uh, or the, he didn't get the popular vote in 2016. So that must have been it must have been fraud. Yes. Uh, when there's, um, you know, uh, investigation of the Russia connections that the FBI is involved with. Then there must be something about these, you know, these executive agencies that are have are against against Trump and are are, are arrayed against Trump and therefore arrayed against the American people. And you know, some of it, I mean, a lot of the stuff is in the air around, you know, Edward Snowden, and um, there's just a lot of things about like the idea of like the of of shadowy things being done by the state out of out of the hands of regular Americans, which I think are were ripe for the picking, I think. And so I think Trump was able to pick up on them. And I think you're right, social media plays a huge role. And as we saw with the Facebook whistleblower, mm-hmm. uh, they absolutely knew that the, the way they set up these, these algorithms to um, make it so that people would be f- continually getting exposed to increasingly extreme content uh, because that would drive traffic to Facebook. That sure. would keep people connected through certain kinds of networks. Um, meant that you had to give an example of how this stuff works here. It uh, there was there were really major wildfires across uh, across the West generally, and the North Pacific Northwest in, in particular in summer of 2020. In in Oregon, uh, a rumor went across Facebook that it was members of there it was. Antifa and Black Lives Matter, people who started the fires in rural Oregon, these massive wildfires. Uh, and they, they had started them to, 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 so they could loot the homes of, of uh-huh. rural, rural people. Oh, so, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the craziest thing imaginable. But you know, there were even, like, you know, there were even county sheriffs who were passing this stuff around in, uh, you know, in, in, city, in towns like Coquille. So you had uh, suddenly the stuff goes, like, you know, across the state on Facebook with, you know, with the speed of the Internet. And then within hours, there are um, armed checkpoints up around rural Oregon, stopping people from going in and out. Uh, uh, journalists, uh, emergency workers, fire teams, people had to show their credentials in order to get into these towns, like Malala and other places. And so it was all kind of had been done on Facebook, these wild conspiracies, which actually made things much worse for people suffering these fires because they, um, you know, because they because people were guarding, you know, blocking their way with you know, automatic rifles. So that's just like one, you know, kind of micro example of how this stuff um, you know, and if you look at January 6th, there were a lot of things that went across Facebook that resulted in here a, um, a an invasion of the state capitol uh, in Salem and happened in, happened in Idaho. Uh, there was attempts on it in Michigan. And, you know, these these things were also had been Facebook generated protests around certain kinds of conspiracy theories. Then, of course, also gave us QAnon, you know. Well, simplism always trumps uh reality you know it's amazing how it's so much easier you know it's much more uh, 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 reassuring to believe something simple like that one quick last question we could talk for a long time on this is fascinating subject i believe are democrats making yet another in a long line of mistakes and being too soft on this rise of violent authoritarianism and fascism yeah, well, I think it's it would um, it's incumbent on Democrats to see. I think we have to see that 
I mean, we're in a kind of a strange place here now, and I think this is the this is the most important point of all, is that we we no longer have what we think of as a functioning two party system. We have one party that has committed itself to violent authoritarianism and to therefore in opposition to democracy, and one party that's still operating as if we are in a party system. You know, uh, and we so what one does under those circumstances is really unclear because you have you know the republican party what's happening is it's it's happening both inside and outside the party from the margins you have the kyle rittenhouses and the militias and the celebration of that stuff and on the inside you have um voter suppression and changes in election administration laws and all kinds of other things which which are all of a piece and they're going to be really of a piece on the on the streets in 2022 and again in 2024 yes. and i think it's uh i i think it's not clear um how best to combat this stuff but i do think it is true that that aside from a few, a few voices in the democratic party there is not enough um there's not enough of an alarm being raised and i don't think it's enough i think one mistake that keeps being made is people keep saying white supremacist white supremacist and the thing is a lot of the stuff is not done under the banner of white supremacy, as I was saying before. It is far-right authoritarianism and this fascism or proto-fascism, and that's what we have to concentrate on. White supremacy is part of it, but as you mentioned, masculinity is part of it as well. And you've got people of color at, you know, at the heart of some of these far-right movements. So what we really have to do is concentrate on the radically anti-democratic and authoritarian and violent uh, elements of this without reducing it just to white supremacy or just something else that we can see as an outside thing because this is now at the heart of the american political system and we are and you know in a, we it, the united states looks more like the 1850s <laughs> than any other time in american history i think Oh, great well if people want to read more of your stuff uh is there some website you can point them to yeah, I have my I've got a uh, my own website and I blog regularly and it's free. You can just sign on for a subscription. Um, uh, it's joelounds.org, and um, there's links to books uh, that I've written or pieces in the New Republic or the Washington Post or, or other places. And my work mostly is these days on this question of the relationship between the far right and the Republican Party. Um, and I've got you know a few few books on the subject as well so thanks for the thanks for the plug oh sure and thank you very much and we're going to go out with uh the uh theme song for the mussolini fascist party in the 1920s thank you so much for being with us today (laughs) thanks for having me bert
with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.